Chapter Ten, Part Two of the Night Operator by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night Operator, Chapter Ten, The Rat River Special, Part Two. Reddy McQuigan went back to the roundhouse a different McQuigan than he had left it, sort of older, quieter, more serious, and the days went by, a month or two of them. Regan, with a sort of inward satisfaction and some complacency, tugged at his scraggly brown moustache and summed it up pretty well. "'Did I not say,' said Regan, "'that the only decent thing that old John would ever do would be to die? Hm? Well, then, I was right, wasn't I?' look at young reddy straight as a string and taking care of the old lady now no i ain't getting my shirt starched the way mrs mcquigan used to starch them but no matter mrs mcquigan isn't taking in washing any more god bless her i guess reddy got it handed to him pretty straight on the carpet that night i'll have him pulling a throttle one of these days what bradley yes this is martin bradley's story not reddy mcquigan's but Reddy had his part in it, had running orders to make one more of those strange meeting points fixed by the great dispatcher that we were speaking about a minute ago. It was three months to the day from old John McQuiggan's death that Bradley, in from a run, found a letter waiting for him up at Mrs. McQuiggan's, and went down under it like a felled ox. Not the big thing to do? Well, perhaps not. All that he cared for in life, everything that had lived for, everything that had kept him straight since his trouble years ago, snatched from him without a moment's warning, that was all. Another man might not have lost his grip, or he might. Bradley lost his, for a little while. But they call him today a game man on the Hill Division. White-faced, not quite understanding himself, in a queer sort of groping way, Bradley, in his flood of bitter misery, told Mrs. McQuiggan, who had watched him open the letter, told her that his little housekeeper, as he had come to call the kitty, was dead. Not even a chance to see her. An accident. The letter from the lawyers who did his business, transmitting the news received from the school authorities who knew only the lawyers as the principals. A letter, trying to break the news in a softer way than a telegram would have done, since Bradley was too far away to get back east in time anyhow. And Mrs. McQuiggan put her arms around him, and, understanding as only her mother's heart could understand, tried to comfort him, while the tears rained down the sweet old face. But Bradley's eyes were dry. With his elbows on the table, holding his chin in his hands, his face like stone, he stared at the letter he had spread out on the red checkered cloth, stared for a long time at that, and at the little photograph he had taken from his pocket. Martin, boy, pleaded Mrs. McQuiggan, and her hand brushed back the hair from his forehead. Martin, boy, don't take it like that. And then Bradley turned and looked at her. Not a word, only a bitter laugh, and picked up his letter and the picture and went out. Bradley went up on the 582 with the local freight west that night, and there was a daredevil laugh in his heart and a mechanical sense of existence in his soul. And in the cab that night, deep in the mountains, Bradley lost his grip. It seemed to sweep him in a sudden, overwhelming surge. And with the door swung wide, the cab leaping into fiery red, the sweat beads trickling down his face that was white in a curious way where the skin showed through for all the grime and perspiration, he lurched and snatched at his engineer's arm. "'Life's a hell of a thing, isn't it, Smithers?' 
He bawled over the roar of the train and the swirl of the wind, wagging his head and shaking imperatively at Smithers' arm. Smithers, a fussy little man, with more nerves than are good for an engineer, turned, stared, caught a something in the fireman's face, and tried to edge a little further over on his seat. In the red flickering glare Bradley's eyes had a look in them that wasn't sane, and his figure, swaying with the heave of the cab, seemed to shoot back and forth uncannily, grotesquely, in and out of the shadows. "'Martin, for God's sake, Martin!' gasped the engineer. "'What's wrong with you?' "'You heard what I said,' shouted Bradley, a sullen note in his voice, gripping the engineer's arm still harder. "'That's what it is, ain't it? Why don't you answer?' Smithers, frightened now, stared mutely. The headlight shot suddenly from the glittering ribbons of steel far out into nothingness, flinging a filmy ray across a canyon's valley, and mechanically Smithers checked a little as they swung the curve. Then, with a deafening roar of thunder racketing through the mountains, they swept into a cut, the rock walls towering high on either side, and over the din Bradley's voice screamed again and again he shook Mither's arm. "'Ain't it? Yeah, ain't it? Say, ain't it?' "'Yes,' stammered Smithers weakly with a gulp, and then Bradley laughed queerly. "'You're a damn fool, Smithers,' he flung out with a savage jeer. "'What do you know about it?' And throwing the engineer's arm from him, his shovel clanged and clanged again as into the red maw before him he shot the coal. Smithers was scared. Bradley never said another word after that, just kept to his own side of the cab, hugging his seat, staring through the cab glass ahead, chin down on his breast, pulling the door at intervals, firing at intervals like an automaton, then back in his seat again. Smithers was scared. At Elk River, the end of the local run, Smithers told the train crew about it, and they laughed at him and looked around to find out what Martin Bradley had to say about it, but Bradley wasn't in sight. Not much of a place, Elk River, not big enough for one to go anywhere without the whole population knowing it, and it wasn't long before they knew where Bradley was. The local made a two-hours layover there before starting back for Big Cloud, and Martin Bradley spent most of it in Kelly's place, a stone's throw from the station. Not drinking much, a glass or two, all told, sitting most of the time staring out of the window. Not drinking much getting the taste of it that he hadn't known for a matter of many years. Two glasses, perhaps three, that was all, but he left Kelly's for the run back with a flask in his pocket. It was the flask that did it, not Smithers. Smithers was frightened at his silent fireman tippling over his shovel. Good and frightened, before he got to Big Cloud, and Smithers did not understand. But Smithers, for all that, wasn't the man to throw a mate down cold. Neither was Bradley himself bad enough to have aroused any suspicions. It was the flask that did it. They made Big Cloud on the dot that morning, 11.26, and in the roundhouse, as Bradley stepped out through the gangway, his overalls caught on the hasp of the toolbox on the tender, and the jerk sent the flask flying into splinters on the floor. At Regan's feet... The fat little master mechanic, on his morning round of inspection, halted, stared in amazement at the broken glass and trickling beverage, got a whiff of the raw spirit, and blinked at Bradley, who by this time had reached the ground. "'What's the meaning of this?' demanded Regan, nonplussed. "'Not you, Bradley. On the run?' 
Bradley did not answer. He was regarding the master mechanic with a half-smile. Not a pleasant one. More a defiant curl of his lips. Smithers, discreetly attempting to make his escape through the opposite gangway, caught Regan's attention. "'Here, you, Smithers!' Regan called peremptorily. "'Come!' Then Bradley spoke, cutting it roughly. "'Leave Smithers out of it,' he said. Regan stared for another moment, then took a quick step forward, close up to Bradley, and got the fireman's breath. Bradley shoved him away insolently. It was a minute before Regan spoke. He liked Bradley, and always had. But from the soles of his feet up to the crown of his head, Regan, first and last, was a railroad man. And Regan knew but one creed. Other men might drink and play the fool and be forgiven and trusted again, a wiper, a shop-hand, a brakeman, perhaps, or any one of the train crew. But a man in the cab of an engine? Never. Reasons, excuses, contributory causes counted not at all. They were not asked for. They did not exist. The fact alone stood as the fact. It was a minute before Regan spoke, and then he didn't say much. Just a word or two without raising his voice, before he turned on his heel and walked out of the roundhouse. "'I'm sorry for this, Bradley,' he said. "'You're the last man I expected it from. "'You know the rules. "'You've fired your last run on this road. "'You're out.' But Regan might have been making some comment on the weather for all the concern it appeared to give Bradley. He stood leaning against the tender, snapping his fingers in his queer way, silent, hard-faced, his eyes far away from his immediate surroundings. Smithers, a wiper or two, Reddy McQuigan amongst them, clustered around him after Regan had gone. But Bradley paid no attention to them, answered none of their questions or comments, and after a little while pushed himself through them and went out of the roundhouse. Bradley didn't go home that day, but Reddy McQuiggan did, at the noon hour. That's how Mrs. McQuinnan got it. Mrs. McQuiggan did not wait to wash up the dishes. She put on the little old-fashioned poke bonnet that she had worn for as many seasons as Big Cloud could remember, and started out to find Regan. She ran the master mechanic to earth on the station platform and opened up on him fluttering, anxious, and distressed. "'Sure, Regan,' she faltered. "'You did not mean it when you fired Martin this morning. Not for good.' Regan pulled at his mustache and looked at her and shook his head at her reprovingly. "'I meant it, Mrs. McQuiggan,' he said kindly. "'You must know that. It will do neither of us any good to talk about it. I wouldn't have let him out if I could have helped it.' "'Then listen here, Regan,' she pleaded. "'Listen to the why of it, that tis only me that who knows.' And Regan listened, and the story lost nothing in the telling because the faded eyes were wet and the wrinkled lips quivered sometimes and would not form the words. At the end, big-hearted Regan reached into his back pocket for his plug, met his teeth in it, wrenched a piece away without looking at her, and cleared his throat. But he still shook his head. "'It's no use your talking, Mrs. McQuiggan,' he said gruffly, to hide his emotion. I'd fire any man on earth. Tis no matter the who or why for drinking in the cab on a run. But Regan... She begged, catching at his arm. He'll be leaving Big Cloud with his job gone. And what then, said Regan? Maybe it would be the best thing, hm? Ah, Regan... She said, and her voice caught a little. Sure, twould be the end of Martin, don't you see? Tis me that knows him, and will not last long, the spell, till only the worst of it is over. 
Martin is too fine for that, Regan. If I can keep him by me, Regan, do you mind? If he goes away where there's nobody to give him a thought, he'll... He'll... Ah, Regan, faith, Regan, tis a lot you've thought of, Martin. Bradley, the same as me. Regan examined a crack in the planking of the station platform minutely while Mrs. McQuiggan held tenaciously to his coat sleeve. I don't know, said Regan heavily. I don't know. Maybe I... Ah, oh, Regan! She cried happily. I knew twas. Not in a cab, interposed Regan hastily. Not if he was the president of the road. But I'll see, Mrs. McQuiggan. I'll see. And Regan saw. Thornley, the trainmaster, and after Thornley, he saw Reddy McQuiggan in the roundhouse. Reddy, said he with a growl that wasn't real. There's a vacancy in the engine crews, hm? Martins, said Reddy quickly. Yes, said Regan. Do you want it? No, said Reddy McQuiggan shortly. Good boy, said the fat little master mechanic. Then I'll give it to you just the same. Martins threw in here, but he'll get a chance breaking for Thornley. You'll run spare to begin with, and, uh, as Reddy stared a little numbly, don't break your neck thanking me. Thank yourself for turning into a man. Your mother's a fine woman, Reddy. I guess you're beginning to find that out, too, hm? So Reddy McQuiggan went to firing where Martin Bradley had fired before, and his pay went up, and Bradley... Uh, no, don't get that idea. Whatever else he may have done, Martin Bradley didn't make a beast of himself. Bradley took the job they offered him, neither gratefully nor ungratefully, took it with that spirit of utter indifference for anything and everything that seemed to have laid hold of him and got him in its grip. And off-duty he spent most of his time in the emporiums along Main Street. He drank some, but never enough to snow him under. It was excitement that he seemed to crave, forgetfulness in anything that would absorb him for the moment. It was not drink so much. It was the faro tables and the roulette and the stud poker that, crooked from the drop of the hat, claimed him and cleaned him out night after night, all except Mrs. McQuiggan's board money. That they never got away from him. Mrs. McQuiggan got that as regularly now that she didn't need it, with Reddy to look after her, as she had when she was practically dependent upon Bradley for it all. Silent, grim, taciturn always, more so now than ever, Bradley went his way, indifferent to Regan when Regan buttonholed him, indifferent to Thornley and his threats of dismissal, meant to jerk Bradley into the straight, indifferent to every mortal thing on earth. And the Hill Division, with Regan leading, shook its head. There wasn't a man but knew the story, and big under the greasy jumpers and the oil-soaked shirts, they never judged him. But Bradley's eyes held no invitation for companionship, so they left him pretty much alone. "'I don't know,' said Regan, tugging at his mustache, twiddling with his thumbs over his paunch. "'I don't know. Looks like the scrap heap at the end of the run, hm? I don't know.' But Mrs. McQuiggan said no. "'Wait,' said she, with her patient smile. "'It's me that knows, Martin. It's a sore, hurt heart the boy has now. But you wait and see. I'll win him through.' It's proud yet you'll be to take your hats off to Martin Bradley. Martin Bradley, a game man. That's what they call him now. Mrs. McQuiggan was right, wasn't she? 
not perhaps just in the way she thought she was, but right for all that. Call it luck or chance if you like, something more than that if it strikes you that way. But an accident in the yards one night, a month after Bradley had lost his engine, put one of the train crew of the Rat River Special out of commission with a torn hand, and sent a call boy streaking up down for a substitute. Call it luck if you like, that the work train with a hybrid gang of a hundred-odd Polacks, Armenians, and Swedes, cooped up in a string of boxcars converted into bunkhouses, messhouses, and commissariat, a window or two in them to take the curse off, and end doors connecting them for the sake of sociability, pulled out for the new Rat River trestle work, with Reddy McQuiggan handling the shovel end of it for Bull Cusarat, who had been promoted in the cab, and Bradley as the substitute brakeman on the front end. Well, maybe it was luck, but that's not what they call it on the Hill Division. Perhaps no one quite understood Bradley, even at the end, except Mrs. McQuiggan, and possibly even she didn't get it all. Inconsistent, to put it mildly, that a man like Bradley would have let go at all? Well, it's an easy matter, and a very human one, to judge another from the safe vantage ground of distance, isn't it? Some men take a thing one way, and some another, and in some the feelings take deeper root than in others, and find their expression in a different way. Ditched from the start, Bradley hadn't much to cling to, had he? Only the baby girl he had dreamed about on the runs at night, only the little tot he had slaved for, who some day was to make a home for him. But about the Rat River special. It was midnight when they pulled out a big cloud, and Bradley in the caboose glanced at Heaney's tissue, which, as a matter of form, the conductor gave him to read. The special was to run twenty minutes behind number 17, the westbound mail train, and make a meeting point with the through freight number 84 eastbound at the Forks. The dispatchers had seized the propitious moment to send the rolling camp through in the quiet hours of traffic, with an eye out to getting the foreigners promptly on the job in the morning, for fear they might draw an extra hour or two of time without working for it. The special was due to make Rat River at four o'clock. Bradley handed back the order without comment, picked up his lantern, and started for the door. "'No need uh, of going forward tonight,' said Heaney, laying his arm on Bradley's arm. "'We're uh, only a short train, a uh, dozen cars, and we can watch it well enough from the cupola. It's damn cold out there.' "'I guess it's all right, Heaney,' Bradley answered, and went out through the door. There weren't any platforms to the box cars, just small end doors— once in camp and stationary on a siding, the cars would be connected up with little wooden gangways, you understand? Bradley, from the platform of the caboose, stepped across the buffer and made his way through several cars. One was pretty much like another, a stove going and stuffy hot. The foreigners stretched out in their bunks, some of them, some of them playing cards on the floor, some asleep, some quarreling, chattering, jabbering, a hard-looking lot for the most part, black-visaged, scowling, unshaven, gold circlets dangling in their ears, bar the Swedes. Bradley worked along with scarcely more than a glance at the occupants, until in the fourth car he halted suddenly and shoved his lamp into the face of a giant of a man who squatted in the corner, sullen and apart, with muttering lips. "'What's wrong with you?' he demanded brusquely. The man drew back with a growl that was like a beast's, lips curling back over his teeth. Bradley stared at him coolly, then turned inquiringly to the crowd in the car. 
He was greeted with a burst of unintelligible polyglot words and spontaneous, excitable gesticulations. Bradley shrugged his shoulders and slammed the door behind him. Outside on the buffer he reached for the ladder, swung himself up the iron rungs to the top of the car, and with his lantern hooked in his arm sat down on the footboard, bracing himself against the brake wheel and buttoned his reefer. There was another night to think ahead of him. To think. If he could only forget. It was that fearful sense of impotency, impotency, impotency. It seemed to laugh and jeer and mock at him. It seemed to make a plaything of this father love of his. There was nothing, nothing he could do to bring her back. That was it. Nothing. Soul, life, mind, and body, he would have given them all to have saved her, would give them now to bring her back. And there was only this ghastly impotency. It seemed at times that it would drive him mad, and he could not forget. And then the bitter, crushing grief, the rebellion, fierce, ungovernable, that his all should have been taken from him, that the years he had planned ahead be turned to nothing but grinning mockery, and that the raging sense of impotency again that rocked his turbulent soul as in an angry, storm-tossed sea. Time passed, and he sat there motionless, save for the jolting of the train that bumped him this way and that against the brake-wheel. They were into the mountains now, and the snowy summits, moon-touched, reared themselves in white, grotesque, fanciful shapes that seemed cold in their beauty, to bring an added chill to the frosty night. Ahead, far ahead, the headlights' ray swept now the track, now the gray rock side, now softly green a clump of pines, as the right-of-way curved and twisted and turned, now slowing up a grade, the heavy, growling bark of the exhaust came with long intervals between, and now on the level it was quick as the tattoo of a snare drum, with the short stack belching a myriad fiery sparks insolently skyward in a steady stream. Around him was the sweep of the wind, the roar of the train, the pound of the trucks beating the fish plates, the sway, the jerk, the recovery of the slewing cars, and, curiously, the deep brooding silence of the mountains. Frowning, it seemed, at this sacrilege of noise, behind showed the yellow glimmer from the caboose, the dark, indistinct outline of a watching figure in the cupola. Suddenly, snatching at the brake-wheel to help him up, Bradley sprang erect. From directly underneath his feet came a strange, confused, muffled sound, like a rush of men from one end of the car to the other. Then there broke a perfect bedlam of cries, yells, shouts, and screams, and then a revolver shot. In an instant Bradley was scrambling down the ladder to investigate. They could not hear the row, whatever it was, in the caboose, and in another he had kicked the car door open and plunged inside. A faint bluish haze of smoke undulated in the air, creeping to the roof of the car, and there was the acrid smell of powder. But there was no sign of a fight, no man killed or wounded sprawling on the floor. But the twenty men who filled the car were crouched in groups and singly against the car sides, or sat upright in their bunks, their faces white, frightened, only their volubility unchecked, for all screamed and talked and waved their arms at once. They made a rush for Bradley, explaining in a half a dozen languages what had happened. Bradley pushed them roughly away from him. "'Speak English!' he snapped. "'What's wrong here? Can't any of you speak English?' and Italian grabbed his arm and pointed through the door Bradley had left open behind him to the next car forward. Piazzo, 
he shouted out wildly. Got it the craze, mad! Got it the gun! Well, go on, prodded Bradley. He's running to the next car, I understand that. But what happened here? Who's Pietro? But the man's knowledge, like his English, was limited. He did not know much. Pietro was not one of them. Pietro had come only that morning to Big Cloud from the east. Pietro had gone suddenly mad. No man had done anything to make Pietro mad. And then suddenly into Bradley's mind leaped the story that he had read in the papers a few days before of an Italian, a homicidal maniac, who had escaped from an asylum somewhere east and had disappeared. The description of the man, as he remembered it, particularly the great size of the man, tallied, now that he thought of it, with the fellow who had been in the car when he had first passed through. He glanced quickly around. The man was gone. So that was Pietro. Bradley started on the run for the next car ahead, and subconsciously, as he ran, he felt the speed of the train quicken. But that was natural enough. They had been crawling to the summit of Mitre Peak, and over that now, before them lay a four percent grade to the level below, one of the nastiest bits of track on the division, curves all the way. Only Bull Cusarat was hitting it up pretty hard for a starter. In the next car the same scene was repeated. The smell of powder smoke, the blue haze hanging listless near the roof out of the air currents, the crouched, terrified foreigners, one with a broken wrist, dangling where a bullet had shattered it. Pietro, berserker fashion, was shooting his way through the train. Bradley went forward more cautiously now, more warily. Strange the way the speed was quickening. The cars were rocking now with short, vicious slews. He thought he heard a shout from the trackside without, but he could not be sure of that. Through the next car and the next he went, trailing the maniac, and then he started to run along. Stumbling feet, trying to hold their footing, came to him from the top of the car. With every instant now the speed of the train was increasing, past the limit of safety, past the point where he would have hesitated to use the emergency brakes if there had been any to use, a luxury as yet extended only to the passenger equipment in those days. The Polacks, the Armenians, and the Swedes were beginning to yell with another terror at the frantic pitching of the cars, making a wild, unearthly chorus that echoed up and down the length of the train. Bradley's brain was working quickly now. It wasn't only this madman that he was chasing fruitlessly. There must be something wrong, more serious still, in the engine cab. That was Heaney and Carroll, the other brakeman who had run along the top. Bradley dashed through the door, and between the cars jumped for the ladder and swarmed up. The globe of his lamp in a sudden slew shivered against the car roof, and the flame went out in a puff. He flung the thing from him, and, with arms wide outspread for balance on his reeling foothold, ran, staggered, stumbled, recovered himself, and sped on again, springing from car to car up the string of them to where the red flare, leaping from the open firebox in the cab ahead, silhouetted two figures snatching for their hold at the brake wheel on the front end of the forward car, Heaney and Carroll. And as Bradley ran, a thin stream of flame spreaded upward from the cab, and there came faintly, almost lost in the thunder of the train, the bark of a revolver shot, and the two figures, ducking instantly, crouched lower. And then Bradley stood beside the others, and Heaney, that no man ever called a coward, clutched at Martin Bradley and shouted in his ear, "'For God's sake, Martin, what'll we do?' The throttle was wide at the top of the grade when he threw Bull Cusarat off. We saw it from the cupola. It's certain death to make a move for him. But Bradley made no answer. 
tight-lipped he was staring down into the cab and a livid face stared back at him the face of the man that he had stopped to look at as they had pulled out a big cloud pietro the face hideously contorted of a maniac and on the floor of the cab stretched out wriggling spasmodically reddy mcquigan lay upon his back and pietro half knelt upon him clutching with one hand at the boy's throat pointing a revolver with the other at the roof of the car wild crazy fast now the speed was the engine dancing ahead the cars wriggling behind the yellow glimmer of the caboose shooting this way and that like a pursuing phantom will-o'-the-wisp and from beneath the roofs of the cars rose that muffled never-ending scream of terror from the polacks the armenians and the swedes rose too from the roofs of the cars themselves for some were climbing there it was disaster absolute and certain not a mile ahead where the track in a short murderous curve hugged bald eagle peak with the canyon dropping a thousand feet sheer down from the right away disaster there if they ever got that far but bradley though he knew it well enough from a hundred runs was not thinking of that in a calm strange way there seemed to come one more analogy between mrs mcquiggan's life and his this human thing that looked like a gorilla was choking her son to death, the son that was making a home for her as she had dreamed he would do some day, the son that was all she had to depend upon, Mrs. McQuiggan's son, his little girl, both out. There seemed to flash before him the picture of the gray head bowed down upon the red checkered tablecloth in the little dining room, the frail shoulders shaking with the same grief that he was drinking now to the dregs, the same grief that he would have sold his soul to avert. Only he had been impotent, impotent. But he was not impotent here to keep those dregs from Mrs. McQuiggan, the only soul on earth he cared for now. And suddenly Bradley laughed loud high above the roar of the train the shouts and screams of the maddened creatures it was sweeping to eternity and the human gorilla in the cab shot its head forward and covered bradley with its revolver teeth showing in a snarl and so bradley laughed and with the laugh poised himself and sprang far out from the car roof in a downward plunge for the tender reached the coal and rolled choking with the hot blood in his throat from the shot that had caught him in mid-air rolled down with an avalanche of coal grappled with the frothing creature that leaped to meet him staggered to his feet struggled for a moment fast locked with the bad man until a lurch of the engine hurled them with a crash against the cab frame and the other stunned slid inertly from his grasp and then for an instant bradley stood swaying clutching at his throat then he took a step forward both hands went out pawing for the throttle found it closed it and he went down across bull Kusarat's empty seat dead only a humble figure bradley just a toiler like millions of others not of much account not a great man in the world's eyes only a humble figure measure him as it seems best to you to measure him for his frailty or his strength they call him a game man on the hill division his story is told End of chapter 10 End of the Night Operator by Frank L. Packard